We are in the midst of a series right now called When You Come Together. And these are sermons from the book of 1 Corinthians. And we are talking about the profound, beautiful fellowship that we enjoy and experience in God's family. But what is fellowship? This is the first time I've shared with you the word uh, that is translated fellowship in the New Testament. It's the Greek word koinonia. And it was, uh, it was a widely used word in the ancient world. It simply meant to have in common. And then it was adopted by early Christians as a way to talk about uh, the bond that we share in Christ, in God's family. Fellowship is a product of the communion that we have with God. God has brought us into fellowship with Himself uh, by His grace and through our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that communion, that connection, that relationship that we share with Him, it spills over into the relationships that we share with one another. And so this vertical relationship begins to bless us horizontally as well. And because of our common faith uh, in God, we have entered into uh, His family, and therefore we are brothers and sisters one with another. And so we share a common life with each other, with our brothers and sisters, with fellow believers. We work together. We serve together in God's kingdom. We take care of each other. We have each other's backs. If one of us has a need, it is met by the rest. We cry on each other's shoulders. We rejoice when there is cause for, for rejoicing. And I could go on and on with various aspects of our shared life together. But what I really want to drive home at the beginning is the joy of fellowship. How fellowship is one of the great blessings of this earthly life. One of the great blessings of being a Christian. Uh, of having your sins washed away by the blood of Christ. Uh, of sharing in this relationship with God. It's, it's just one of these uh, wonderful gifts that we get to enjoy uh, as we are a part of God's family. Fellowship. What a joy. But there are limits to this fellowship that we enjoy. And sadly, sometimes fellowship must be, well, withdrawn. That's what Paul says. That's not what I say. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And I want you to take your Bible and go there with me. And some of this text will be up on the screen for us as well. This was the text that was read for us earlier. The verses read for us earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, in which Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. So, you are putting up with behavior that would not even be tolerated by your godless neighbors. So, you are not Clearing even that low bar of behavior. What you are tolerating within the ranks of God's people would not even be put up with among godless people. So this is a serious problem. And we've already talked about several problems that the believers in Corinth faced. And this is among the most serious. He says, a man has his father's wife. 
which means here not that he's in a relationship with his mother, but, but with his stepmother. If it was the other way around, Paul would have said so. He's in, and I'm going to be very careful with my language because I'm aware of my audience. He has entered into a romantic relationship with his stepmother. And the church just sort of put up with it, just sort of swept it under the rug, acted like it was no big deal. Paul says it is a big deal. He says in verse 2, you are arrogant. You should be mourning the fact that this, not, not only that this is happening, but that you are turning a blind eye to it. And then he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So in this section of 1 Corinthians, it is sexual immorality that, nece that necessitates the removal of this particular brother. That necessitates church discipline, as we sometimes call it. We know the seriousness of sexual immorality. Paul spends some time talking about it in chapter 6. If you want to look ahead, you see, you know, in verse 13, the latter part of that verse, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So the purpose of your life is not sexual fulfillment or pleasure. It is giving your body over for use by the Lord. And then he goes on to say, flee from sexual immorality. Don't just resist it. Don't just say no to it. Run in the opposite direction. So serious is this sin. And then he says, don't you know, this is chapter 6. I'm just highlighting a few verses here. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Your body is a dwelling place of God's very spirit. You don't get to make the call for how you use your body anymore. Your body has been given over to use by God. You were bought with a price. You were redeemed with the very blood of Christ. So glorify God in your body. So Paul spends several verses talking about the seriousness of sexual immorality. And that is what necessitates the removal here, a violation of what God's Word has to say about sexual immorality. I don't need to remind you, or maybe we should remind each other every once in a while, that we have embraced a countercultural sexual ethic as God's people, an increasingly unpopular sexual ethic, and it is that sexual expression should be reserved for monogamous, lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. And within that context, within that relationship, it is a beautiful gift from God to be enjoyed between husband and wife. And that's where we stand on that. And that's maybe a, a whole different sermon for another day. But it is this ethic, it is this conviction that is being violated among the brethren, uh, among the church in Corinth. And Paul says, for that reason... The person who is involved in this needs to be removed, needs to be put outside the fellowship that you enjoy as a family of God. But it's not the only reason given in the New Testament why a person, why a Christian, a brother or sister should be disfellowshipped. Let me run through this very quickly. There's other immoral behavior that's listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Those who are greedy, swindlers, idolaters, he goes on revilers, drunkards. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just a representative list. 
People who are embroiled in an unrepentant way in this type of behavior, Paul says it becomes necessary for discipline to take place. Uh, those who espouse false doctrine, you can look in 2 John 9 and 10. Those who deny foundational truths about the Christian faith have no place in the body of believers. People who are disorderly, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 and 14. Those who cause division. The New Testament speaks out in strong terms against people who, who needlessly stir division in the Lord's church. Discipline is necessary in such a case. And one more, those who leave. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John talks about those who have departed from the faith. It ought to be acknowledged that they have left, that they are no longer in fellowship with God's people. So I say all this to say that the New Testament, the, the message overall of the New Testament is this. There is a point at which the church must say to a fellow believer, to a brother or sister, this behavior or this attitude that you are involved in, that you have been approached about repeatedly and lovingly, yet sternly and firmly, that you insist on continuing, that, that you stubbornly insist on carrying, carrying on with, because of that, that is not compatible with our Christian way of life. What you insist on doing is not compatible with the way of life that you yourself adopted when you were baptized into Christ and when you were welcomed into the fellowship of the saints. And therefore, discipline is necessary. Now, this is not an easy sermon to preach. It's difficult in many ways. You don't hear sermons about this topic as often as maybe you used to. I myself have not preached a sermon on this particular topic in my five years uh, in this pulpit, I don't think. One reason it's difficult is because of the inconsistency in practicing. And I don't necessarily mean in this body of believers. I'm just talking about uh, the church in general. We have been inconsistent in practicing church discipline. Uh, in some churches, the practice has been abused. And you probably can think of examples, especially those of you who are older, where you believe the practice was probably abused. I believe that it should be for flagrant violations of God's will for egregious sins, but sometimes it has been used for what we might call more minor issues. When my grandfather visited church with my grandmother for the first time, he was not raised in the church, in churches of Christ, and he went to church with my grandmother. This was in the late 40s, early 50s, sometime in there. In the assembly, the elders announced that they were withdrawing fellowship for a lady who was a member there at my grandmother's church. And this was a lady who was a neighbor of my grandfather, uh, who was on his paper route, somebody who he knew quite well. And in the statement that was made, it was said that the church was withdrawing fellowship from this woman because her daughter was dressing immodestly. Now, maybe there were other issues that my grandfather just doesn't remember. He's getting on up in age. 
and sometimes he can be a little forgetful. And probably at that time, he was more concerned with impressing his date, my grandmother, than he was listening to what was happening in the assembly. And, of course, modesty in dress is important. I believe it to be very important. But if that was the sole issue, or if that was the only issue, does that rise to the level of necessitating church discipline, of withdrawal, of disfellowship? Maybe not. And some of you might be thinking, well, Joseph, it sounds like you're trying to classify sins. It sounds like you're trying to say some sins are worse than others. Well, all sin is the same in that it brings separation from God. And the very best people that you ever knew and the very worst people that you ever knew, they both need the blood of Christ to be saved, to be redeemed. But the Bible itself teaches... In, in many places that there are some sins for various reasons that are more serious than others. It seems that's what Paul is saying in the very next chapter, in chapter 6, when he talks about sexual immorality. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So it sounds as if Paul is saying, because of the importance that God places on our bodies, as dwelling places of the Holy Spirit, sins made against the body are in some sense more serious than other sins. And removal or discipline should only take place when there is a flagrant or egregious violation, not for more minor issues that maybe should be handled in a different way. It also, church discipline, removal, whatever you want to call it, should be the last resort. The very last resort. But you... Mike could think of, maybe not here, but elsewhere where you've worshipped where it was employed too hastily. Maybe even before a conversation was had with the person who was being disciplined. I believe that to be highly inappropriate. Um, Titus chapter 3 verse 10, Paul says, if someone in your midst is embroiled in sin, you need to warn him once. You need to warn him twice. The emphasis here is talk to the person. Beg the person to repent out of love and care and concern. It's not just something you do right off the bat. Uh, removal. And then I think about Matthew chapter 18, uh, 15 through 17, when Jesus talks about when your brother sins against you, you need to go to him, talk to him about it. If he doesn't listen... Go to him with one person. If he doesn't listen, go to him with two persons, uh, two people, excuse me. If he doesn't listen, then tell the church about it. There's this, and I don't believe that to be, you know, you need to make a list with a little box beside it and check those off. Jesus is just emphasizing that there is a process, there, there is a system that you need to follow before you go to that last step. And so we've seen that this practice has been abused. And in this, in this instance, I'm saying it should be the last resort. All other options should be exhausted. Every effort should be made to, to reach a brother or sister who you know is involved in something they shouldn't be before you take this final step. So in some places, uh, in some cases, it's been abused. In others, it hasn't been observed at all. And in some church contexts, there is an emphasis on grace to the exclusion of holy living. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. I'm all about grace. Every church should be all about grace. 
Every church is a monument to the existence of God's grace. We would not be here gathering right now were it not for God's graciousness and mercy and love and forgiveness to us. What I mean when I say what I say here is there is an emphasis on on cheap grace. To the exclusion of the emphasis that the New Testament makes on this manner of life that we are to adopt as Christians, as God's people. The church is most certainly a hospital for sinners. And we should not expect people in the world to clean up their act and to fix all their problems before they come into our midst. They have to bring all that junk with them, bring all that brokenness with them so that when they get here, Jesus can fix it. But when they get here, we need to remind them, we need to remind ourselves that God loves us just the way we are, but He loves us so much that He refuses to leave us that way. He wants to transform us. He wants to change our hearts and our attitudes and, and our very lives. So the church is a hospital for sinners, but it's also a home for saints. And we are patient with one another. We are long-suffering with one another because who among us hasn't messed up this last week? In a thought, in a word, in an action, we have been displeasing to God in some way. We've been hurtful to each other. We've got to bathe uh, the, the entire church family. I mean, this has to be bathed in forgiveness and, and, and grace. We, we've got to be patient with one another, but we also must hold each other accountable. These are truths that seem to be on opposite sides of the spectrum, but they must be held together in tension, in church life. Yes, God is gracious, but no, He doesn't approve of every type of behavior. We must hold each other accountable. And sometimes practice of withdrawal or, or discipline is necessary. But how should it be done? All right, let's look at some mechanics here from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's see what the New Testament has to say. Let's see what Paul has to say to the believers in Corinth. Verses, th verses 3 through 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. What Paul means by that is, I have already judged that behavior as being ungodly. As being outside the bounds of God's will. It clearly is. You have chosen not to see that, but I see it that way even from afar. And so he says, verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So it sounds to me as if for this to take place, the church family, or at least the majority of the church, should be in agreement that it's necessary. And ideally, if we are of the same mind and if we share the same values and convictions, then we would agree. And if we know that every, every effort has been made to, to reach the beloved brother or sister, then we would agree that such a drastic action must be taken. Paul says, when you are assembled, when you come together, so it should be carried out uh, in the assembly, presumably articulated by the leaders who represent the church, are the ones who, and I, I, don't, I hate to use legal sounding language, but I'm, I'm searching for the right language to use, the ones who conduct the proceedings of 
such an act? So in the assembly, the church in agreement, articulated by the leaders, but the next two questions I think are maybe even more important in our minds, or, or maybe you're more curious about the next questions that I want to cover. What does this look like practically? When you've taken such a step, how do you then interact with the person who has been disciplined or removed? Uh, chapter 5, verse 9. Look at this. Skip down a little bit. Paul says, I wrote to you. In other words, I've already had correspondence with you about this. Not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, what he's talking about there is sexually immoral people who call themselves brothers or sisters. But who are unrepentant about the behavior that they're involved in. Paul's saying, I'm not talking about people out in the world. I'm not talking about pulling yourself out of the world and no longer associating with the very people in your community that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about when somebody has become a part of God's family and that they refuse to discontinue the practices of their old way of life. Don't associate with such a person. A brother or sister who impenitently is involved here, in this case, in sexual immorality. So, not to associate means, Paul uses the language in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, keep away from. The language a little bit later in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 14 and Titus chapter 3 verse 10, have nothing to do with. What it means is this, and this is language from Everett Ferguson. He says, it means don't participate in any activity that would give the appearance of approval of the person's unacceptable conduct. Meaning a brother or sister who's embroiled in this behavior, who refuses to change, and as a result has been disciplined by the church. Don't do anything with the person that would give the appearance that you approve of what they're doing. So in, in the ancient world, this would be sharing a meal. Paul mentions that a little bit later in verse 11. In 2 John chapter 9 and 10, it is mentioned welcoming someone into your home. Even saying hello, even a common greeting. Now these types of actions might not be violations of this teaching today. Because of how differently we view meals and welcoming people into your home and greetings on the street, those specific actions might not be violations because of how the action is perceived today versus the ancient world. But generally speaking, anything you do in participating with this person that gives the idea to them and to everybody else that you are endorsing what they're up to. Now, maybe the most important question. Why? Why should this fellowship sometimes be undertaken? And this might be making some uncomfortable because it's a neglected theme or teaching in the New Testament. And we don't hear messages very often about it, but also because we live in such a tolerant, accepting society that it seems very judgmental and exclusionary, and it just, we bristle when we hear language like this, because we've been trained culturally to be resistant of behavior like that. Uh, and so, this is, this is a teaching of the New Testament that 
inevitably, as Americans in 2020, steps on our toes and challenges our sensibilities. But it's in there, and it's important, and here's why. Maybe you say, why? You know, can't we just, I mean, keep teaching the truth, you know, in sermons and classes, keep, keep declaring what God's Word says, but let's let God handle it, you know, at the end. Let's let Him sort it out. Let's not take action before then. And I want to say, such action is not stating that, it's not placing ourselves in God's role as the ultimate judge, but it is saying that some behavior, some attitudes are incompatible with the way of life to which we've been called in, in Jesus Christ. Here's why. Let me allow the Scriptures to speak. One reason is, well, it's found in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7. He says, your boasting is not good. Stop being so proud of how you're tolerating this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So one reason is to maintain the integrity or the purity or the reputation of the church. And not in, a, not in a, a shallow, let's try to save our faces sort of way, but in a way that says, we believe we have been called to a, a higher standard of living, to a different ethical code than the rest of the world. And you know what? We're serious about that. We think it's important. And so that is what is meant by when Paul says, we should be concerned about the reputation, the integrity of the church using this imagery here. But the primary reason, the biggest reason, the one I really want us to focus on, is found in chapter 5, verse 5. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That verse sounds so harsh. But this is what Paul is saying. If a person in your midst is involved unrepentantly, repeatedly, after, you know, many reminders in sin, then that person has already placed themselves in the realm, in Satan's realm. There are only two realms. There's God's realm and there's Satan's realm. And you can't be in both. You can only be in one or the other. And Paul here says, you need to acknowledge that this person has decided not, no longer to live in, this is so sad, no longer to live in God's realm, but in the devil's realm. And we do this so that the fleshly side can be destroyed and the spirit can live. And Paul emphasizes throughout his letters that we need to be giving ourselves over to the spirit, to the way of the spirit, submitting to the spirit's guidance and killing the flesh. So we do this, place the person, or acknowledge that the person has placed themselves outside God's realm so the flesh can die and the spirit can live. So the main purpose, I hope you're still with me, the main purpose of such an action is to convict someone of sin so that they will repent. It is a last-ditch effort to save someone's soul. Restoration and redemption is the goal. So if this is ever done out of meanness, out of cruelty, to kick a person when they're down, to try to show a person, hey, the rest of us are better than you. Uh, if it's ever done out of a, 
retaliation or revenge, it is not in keeping with the Scriptures. It is a practice that is done out of care and concern. It's about restoration and redemption. A couple, uh, a couple other verses here. I think I have them on the screen. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him, not by hitting him over the head with your Bible, not by slapping him around. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And be careful. Keep watch, because you could be tempted too. So what does that tell us? Restore people in a spirit of gentleness, but also with humility. Knowing, but for the grace of God go I. That could easily be me in their shoes. And if it was me, I would want my church family to care enough about me to warn me about the road that I'm heading down. I hope that they would love me enough to take me aside and say, Joseph, we beg of you to stop this. We are concerned about you out of our love for you. We don't want your soul to be lost. Keep watch on yourself because that could be you. It might be you one of these days and you better hope that you're part of a family of believers who loves you enough to come running after you to rescue you from Satan's lair. So do it gently in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15. Do I have this up here? Yes. 2 Thessalonians. Do not re this is after Paul has said, hey, if somebody's involved in this or that, discipline is necessary. You need to put them out from among you, but don't regard them as an enemy. Warn them as a brother. Don't forget this is, this is still a part of your family. This is still somebody who God loves very much. Somebody who God sent His Son to die for. God does not want anyone lost. Regard them as being a part of the family of God. Ultimately, I believe such an action is an act of love. Or it ought to be. We talked about the excellent way of love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When we have to, when there is no other option on the table, we withdraw in hopes. Listen very carefully. In hopes that this dear brother or sister sees how hopeless the world is out there. And they renew their hope in the Lord. It's an act of love. It, it's an act of tough love. But you know, we, we are tough on our children. We discipline our children. We do not spare the rod when it comes to our children. Why? Because we don't like them? Because we're mean? Well, some of you might be thinking, yeah, mama was mean. She was just downright mean. Or daddy was or whatever. No, most of us can remember that it was out of love. We, can see, we couldn't see it then, right? We can see it now. Mama and Daddy loved me so much. They wanted to protect me from a certain way of life, and so they disciplined me. They loved me enough to discipline me. They were hard on me, because they loved me. We ought to say, in a sermon such as this, 
a couple of sides. Not really. These are connected. We ought to be, we've talked about negative discipline. We ought to be creating an environment of positive discipline in the church so that we don't have to practice the negative kind so, so, oft, so it's not often necessary. What I mean by positive discipline is we are promoting spiritual growth among us. We are teaching. We are training. We are practicing spiritual practices so that we can grow into the image of Jesus Christ. So that hopefully none of us, none of us go down a road where we don't want to go. And so on the front end, we, we practice positive discipline. It's almost like a preventative to keep us from ever having to, to practice the negative kind. Also, we want to aim to create a warm, loving community life. We want there to be close fellowship among every family, among every brother and sister. We want everybody to experience the blessing and joy of fellowship so that it would be sorely missed if it was ever taken away. Because it's difficult to remove fellowship from somebody if it was never experienced in the first place. And so our goal is to foster this sort of warm relationship among us where it would be we would know what we were missing if we ever had to miss out on it. To close out today, in 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there's a very interesting passage. And some people think that it might just be a follow-up to the, to the account in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of the man who was in a relationship with his stepmother, with his father's wife. Paul says to save this man's soul, he needs to be removed from among you. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we read, for such a one, he's speaking of someone who has been disciplined by the church. This punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Is this a follow-up? To the situation from 1 Corinthians 5? Possibly. But we can't know for sure. But even if it's not. This passage shows the desired outcome. Anytime the church has to take this unpleasant step of withdrawal. This shows the desired outcome. Repentance. And restoration. And healing and forgiveness. That is what we're after, or it's what we ought to be after whenever we have to take this unpleasant step. And it shows, this passage in 2 Corinthians shows that it's possible. It shows that it's possible that someone can be disciplined in such a way so as to convict that person of their sinfulness and cause them to repent and come back. And Paul says, if that person is repented, you need to reiterate your love for them. The punishment has been harsh enough. Welcome them back with open arms. That's what the church ought to be after anytime such an action is taken. That's what God is after. God went to great lengths to save our souls. He allowed His one and only Son to descend, to take on the form of man, and to be stretched out on that cross so that we can be saved. And Jesus tells the parable about the good shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one. 
maybe we would say, hey, you, you still got 99. You know, just be happy with your 99. And, you know, let the one go. Jesus says, no, the shepherd leaves the 99 in the open country and goes after the one. Because the one is important. And there is no soul that is unimportant to God. God wants everyone saved. He wants everybody a part of his family. What he's after is restoration and healing and forgiveness. That's what the church ought to be after today. If you need healing in your life, if you need to share a relationship with God through Christ, you have an opportunity to do that this morning. You can be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll be brought into the family of God. This is not just for people in this room, but for anyone up and down the hall who would like to come and make their wishes known. If you're struggling in any way, we invite you to come. Or if you want to stick around and meet with a couple of our elders afterwards for prayer, or if you need to speak to them about anything, we welcome you to do that. If you need to come right now, why don't you do it while we stand and sing?